Hello, Lewis fans, and welcome to the Mirror C.S. Lewis podcast. My name is Thornton. And my name is Andrew, and we are two brothers who enjoy C.S. Lewis and want to take themselves and others on a journey through his writings. Yeah, well, it is good to be back, Andrew. I know it's been uh, a long time since we have gotten to record our podcast. I know uh, I've been busy with buying a house and I guess now uh, having uh, a baby or just in the process of having a baby. And I know you've been busy with a lot of things, too. Yeah, I've been busy youth pastoring, um, writing and creating jokes to be an uncle. Yes. Um, so, yes, it's been it's been a hectic summer. I know for youth pastors, summer is kind of our Super Bowl season. So mm-hmm. it's been big. Yeah, so it's almost a miracle that we are even here right now. hey yo. Yeah. And I guess like all journeys, um, one needs to rest or go off on secondary paths before they come back to the primary one. So, yeah, that feels like foreshadowing. Yeah, very, yeah, foreshadowing. 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 <laughs> so I guess we'll just go ahead and jump into the background and context of, of the book Miracles. So yeah, prior to becoming a Christian, C.S. Lewis's thoughts on miracles had been informed by David Hume's essay on miracles. And Hume's argument basically says that a miracle is a violation of a law of nature and a law of nature is a description of nature based off repeated observances of phenomena. If an event is observed that contradicts a law of nature, then the law is not a law or the law is incomplete. Thus, there can be no miracles. Yeah, and, and when Lewis became a Christian, he thought that Hume was begging the question or assuming the conclusion. Right? C.S. Lewis thought that, that one needed to have their mind uh, philosophically open to the possibility of miracles before arguing for the historical validity of any one miracle. Yeah, and I thought that was an interesting tact he took because I, whenever I thought about miracles, I was always coming at it from an angle of just trying to prove one specific one. But this book really opened up my eyes to yeah the philosophical problem right. of miracles. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so Lewis started out in 1942 giving talks and writing short essays on miracles, many of which you can read in the collection God in the Dock. Mm. Yeah, and, and in writing to you know thank Lewis for the screw tape letters, Dorothy, or excuse me, Dorothy Sayers lightheartedly complained about Christianity's retreat from defending miracles. And Lewis said that the cavalry was coming and that he was starting a book on that very subject. The book, A Summation of many of his essays came out in 1947. Yeah, and in 1948, the famous 20th century philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe debated with Lewis on his work Miracles, particularly uh, critiquing his his view of naturalism. Uh, the result was Lewis clarifying some of his terms and editing his argument, uh, in which we'll talk more about that in uh, in the thoughts and analysis section. And, but he edited it to make it more clear and then republished the book in 1960. The imagined result is of this back and forth between them is Lewis feeling that Lewis's feelings were hurt so bad that he retreated from formal apologetics and jumped into children's fantasy. Uh, some even uh, believe that the green witch in the silver chair is Hanscom herself. <laughs> Yeah, Lewis was definitely bruised by this debate, but he was nowhere near defeated. And 
in kind of a refreshing way, at least in modern day, this seems refreshing. Anstom herself thought that they had a sober discussion mm-hmm. and that others were blowing Lewis's reaction out of proportion and projecting onto him, which I think it's kind of funny that the two people who debate, you know, the person he debated was defending him, mm-hmm. right? Like, I yeah. don't know if we see that as much today, but yeah. that's kind of refreshing to hear. Certainly. Yeah, and yeah, like like Andrew said, Lewis was a little bruised, but I guess less by Anstem's critiques, but just, I guess, more from what I read about how, I guess, draining it was to constantly just be defending your faith rather than, uh, I guess, enjoying it or practicing it. Sure. Uh, so he... He, uh, I guess, just needed, I guess, a break from, just as, like, I guess, a combat soldier. Right. Needs a break from the the front line. Sure. So, yeah, whatever the criticisms or Lewis's feelings, though, uh, they did not hinder the experience of one reader, uh, Walter Hooper, who read the book and it changed his life. And Walter Hooper, for those of us who love C.S. Lewis, changed many of our lives as well. Uh, he read it in an army boot camp and knew he had to read more by Lewis, which eventually led him to quitting his teaching job at the University of Kentucky to become Lewis's private secretary, then executor of Lewis's literary estate. Mm. And because of Walter Hooper, like I said, Lewis is still widely published and read today. God bless Walter Hooper. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so... Let's go into a little bit of overview of the text, um, and, and we'll look at, at what Miracles actually has for us here. Um, the book is divided into 16 chapters. The first two chapters, Lewis, he's, he's setting the scope of the book. He's defining his terms. He's setting the stage here. And then the third chapter is the crux of Lewis's argument where he identifies the fatal problem of naturalism. Yes, Lewis argues that if we reasoned to a theory of nature that says it is the whole interlocked system, that nothing can come into or out of nature, so our mental processes, so thus our mental processes are merely physical synapses firing. And so that's the first premise. And the second is if we believe in an objective truth that we can know through human reasoning, then it's contradictory that our, quote, theory of nature, which explained everything else in the whole universe, but which it is impossible to behave that our thinking was valid, would be utterly out of court, end quote, as Lewis says. Um, Or in the words of J.B.S. Haldane, if my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are truth. Truth. Hence, I have no reason for supposing my brain to be composed of atoms. Now, this was the chapter that Anstom took issue with and led Lewis to clarify his terms and argument. Basically, uh, Lewis in his original work was using the term uh, or saying that nature was irrational. But Anstom says that that is not technically the right term to use in saying that nature is non-rational, where instead of uh, the conclusion not following the premises, which it would be irrational, uh, there the premises, if you will, are just, I guess, random. If you uh, so, Lewis still didn't think it that um, 
that line of reasoning or that critique uh, leveled his argument, but he that was what he changed in his uh, 1960 edition, is switching mm. from irrational causes to non-rational. Okay. Mm. Yeah, and in chapters 4 and 5, Lewis goes on to argue that human reason has its taproot in the, in the God who made nature, and that a naturalist who explains moral judgments would have to explain it in the same way they explain a yawn or a vomit. Yeah. Uh, Lewis admits in chapter 6 that rational thinking can be conditioned by nature, as we see with injuries, sleep, or drinking too much alcohol. He says that this isn't a problem, though, and would be exactly what we should expect. Yeah. And, and he shows that a person's rational mind is his share of eternal reason insofar as their brain allows just as a nation's moral outlook is its share in eternal moral wisdom. Yeah. Lewis considers two other objections. First, uh, if the supernatural is so stupendous, why should we need an argument for it at all? And second, does supernature produce any results in space and time except through human beings? Yeah. And in chapter 7, Lewis takes on Hume's argument more directly, calling it a red herring. Hume said that miracles couldn't happen because the laws of nature exclude them. They would be a violation. Lewis says that those who have believed in miracles don't believe they're a violation, but rather a suspension of those laws of nature. And Lewis goes on, on to share that the sophistication of the ancients and how their belief in miracles isn't because of a misunderstanding, but how some of their philosophical missteps are similar to ours. Yeah, in uh, chapter 8, Lewis goes on and examines the laws of nature more closely. He concludes that the laws of nature do not cause events, they state the pattern to which every event must conform. Mm. He says it's inaccurate to call a miracle something that breaks the laws of nature. He says miracles aren't a suspension either, but feeding new events into the pattern. That nature harmonizes anything that comes into it, which that is an important point for, uh, for later. Right. Um, and then in, in chapter 9, he delightfully calls his chapter a, a chapter not strictly necessary, which is kind of Deadpoolish and, yeah. you know... Very tiny. Yeah, very, you know, self-aware. Mm-hmm. Where he gives a kind of mini spiritual biography on his personal understanding of nature. And from chapter 10 to the end of the book, he then turns his attention to the specific miracles of the Bible. Yes. He defends the mer- metaphorical language of the New Testament saying Christian doctrines of heaven and earth, a God who can have children, etc., have, quote, always been statements about spiritual reality, not specimens of primitive physical science, end quote. Yeah, and and then he kind of goes into um, a point where he says that some people will deny miracles not because of any philosophical grounds, but because their real religion is pantheism, which doesn't believe in a God who performs particular actions. They don't believe in any living God of Christianity. Lewis discusses next the, quote, propriety uh, propriety of miracles. Because even if God could perform miracles, would he? It would interrupt, quote, the steady development of nature. Lewis draws an analogy to art, where good artists know when to break a, quote, rule in service of a higher or subtler aim. Yeah, and in chapter 13, Lewis deals with Hume's argument 
right head on. Hume said, the more often a thing happens, the more probable it should happen again, and the less often, the less probable. Again, Hume assumes a uniformity of nature, which is what Lewis questions. He said, we should judge the probability of miracles by their innate fitness. And we'll explain more of that in a moment. And yeah, that innate fitness is what we were talking about earlier about how uh, Lewis says uh, miracles are produce a harmony with the rest of nature. Right. Yeah. So in chapter 14, it is, is the heart of the book. And where Lewis argues that the incarnation, or what he calls the grand miracle, is the central miracle of all history. It is the miracle from which every other miracle prepares for or results from. Even though the incarnation has only happened once, thus by Hume's standards, is highly improbable, Lewis says that the history of the earth has only happened once itself and is still a reality. Lewis judges the incarnation's fitness by drawing an analogy. He asks us to imagine a novel or a symphony and someone comes to us with the, quote, missing part. He says that we know if this missing part really belongs if it fits into the whole, illuminates the other parts, and then pulls them all together. The rest of the chapter, Lewis dives into several more aspects of the Incarnation. He talks about what it actually meant for God to become man, saying it's like a diver going to the depths to come back with their treasure. And like a full and perfect organism becoming a sperm and ovum in the dark womb and growing into an embryo, then a baby, then an adult. Lewis then goes on to talk about how other religions play out this drama of life to death to life. But, and this was a crucial point for his conversion, in Christianity it is actually true. We know of Jesus' death actual year under a Roman magistrate who actually existed. And also Lewis says... This drama of Jesus took place among the Jews who had no trace of natural religion. Yahweh is not a na nature god, but the god of nature. Lewis assages that modern mind when he discusses the doctrine of a chosen people, saying that being chosen is a burden, and that those chosen are not chosen for their own sake, but for the sake of the unchosen. Mm. In the last part of chapter 14, Lewis talks about the doctrine of death. He starts with asking if we can think of Adam's sin as fortunate. He says that more was gained by the fall than lost because the greater the sin, the greater the mercy. And that death matters, but it is not the greatest of all evils. Because a man is a composite being, spirit and organic matter, death is the means of redemption from sin and that the means by which sin is defeated. Satan produced death, but is how Satan will be defeated. Christ is our picture for how humanity should embrace freely. Yeah, that's a that was a tough part of the the book for me, which I guess we'll we'll talk more later. Right. But how Adam sin was, I guess, an overall good. Right. But, yeah, well, I, yeah. Well, we, we can discuss more <laughs> in a minute. So yeah, all of this the the life death life drama, the historical accuracy, the selectivity, and the doctrine of death proves, Lewis says, the quote fitness of the incarnation. It shows not only the probability but its truth. Right, and in chapter fifteen, Lewis turns to classifying Christ's miracles into miracles of the old and new creation. In both categories, Christ, 
does suddenly and locally something that God has done or will do in general. In Miracles of the Old Creation, Christ focuses what the dot of nature has already done on a larger scale. For example, turning water into wine. Every year, Lewis says, God makes wine, God incarnate short-circuits the process and makes it in a moment, end quote. Lewis goes through the miracles of healing and destruction to prove the same point. And in the last chapter, chapter 16, Lewis turns to miracles of the new creation, with the resurrection being the chief miracle. He says that the resurrection is more than mere survival, but that Christ is the pioneer of life who has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has beaten the king of death that has risen, that the risen Christ is a picture of a new human nature, not of unmaking, but remaking. Lewis says that the miracles of walking on water, raising Lazarus, and the transfiguration anticipate the new creation. And this new creation is supernatural to our current point of view, but natural from its own. He ends the book with an analogy of the new creation, saying it is like a skyscraper, with one floor reality as the naturalists perceive it, and a ground floor reality as religion conceives of it, but many more that build on top of it. Yeah. Good, and we can kind of go into our own thoughts here in a second, but first let's kind of just analyze what what some other criticisms and, and um, yeah. other people's thoughts and opinions yeah. have been of this book. Um, contemporary reviewers rate it relatively favorably with a 4.02 out of 5 rating on Goodreads with over 16,000 rating. And many couldn't follow his line of reasoning and didn't think it was uh, that his communication as clear as other works like mere Christianity. Which I wonder if that is says more about current day readers right. rather than Lewis because when the book came out, reviewers praised Lewis for and praised Miracles for its clarity and calling it immensely readable. Yeah, I, I can imagine that it's probably a little bit more of just, you know, people expect a, a little bit more of modern-day conversation yeah. in their reading. And rather than like a, a very detailed, uh, deliberate, point-by-point approach to an argument. Right. And, again, that's only, you know, 0.98 of a person out yeah. of five, so... Um, still very highly favorable. Um, and there were other criticisms beyond just Anscombe's. One of Lewis's fellow Inklings, Owen Barfield, didn't think he could use reason as a secure line to the divine, since reason was something that he didn't use when he slept, um, and that reason had gradually developed over his life. The soundness of Lewis's, quote, argument from reason is still debated today. Some don't think that Lewis considered naturalism and rationality in all its diverse varieties. Others, though, think that regardless of other varieties, he refutes the most pernicious kind of naturalism. In in pop culture, or I guess in non-academic culture, some references to miracles, Mm -hmm. uh, I found that one song by a band, uh, Declaration AD, which is a heavy metal band from New Zealand, has a song titled HRT, which is an acronym for Horde Red Things, which was one of the chapters from the book. Right. And here are some of the lyrics, in, in case you're wondering. Horde Red Things, in their heads, try to tell me where I stand. Think pearly gates are everything. That's not my faith, just imagery. 
caught in imagery, wordsmithery, thoughts of flowing beards and pearly gates, thinking that this is the crux of doctrine. Like the metaphor replace, let the metaphor replace the real thing. But that is the center of nothing, and you're dodging the issue completely. An exercise in futility to critique based solely on imagery. Yeah, so I, it's a poetic and a nice uh, synopsis of, of that chapter for sure. Right. But when you listen to it, you have no idea that <laughs> that is what they're saying. Yeah, but, you, you definitely probably need to look up the lyrics whenever you're listening. Yeah. So, Andrew, so what were some of your big takeaways or questions or um, thoughts on, on the book? Sure. Well, the, the big thing that I... It was literally, I got it from chapter one, but mm-hmm. I, my brain just kept going there throughout the rest of the book, mm-hmm. was the issue of holiness. Mm-hmm. Um, holiness being a absolute imperative issue in the Bible, and as a pastor, definitely something, you know, I'm I'm striving toward myself, but also trying to pastor others to, to work toward themselves. And the idea of holiness is that there because there is a god and specifically an active god who who cares and um you know has you know a stake in life mm-hmm. you know he has set some things apart mm. that's the idea of holiness to be holy is to be set apart mm-hmm. and so to be set apart really what that's talking about is from nature Right, we become holy when through Jesus and through you know through Christ and what He did on the cross and in resurrection, you know when when we enter into that through faith, then we become holy. We become set apart from our sin nature. Right, we still struggle. We still um, you know are operating in this world, but we're no longer operating of this world. So we're operating you know in our nature. But we're now holy and separate from our nature, you know. And so that kind of theme really is woven throughout this book. It's never, to my knowledge, explicitly mentioned. But that idea of holiness is really attacked when you have a view of naturalism. Mm. You know, if nothing is separate, then nothing is holy or unholy. Mm. So you thought that Lewis was giving a good philosophical position or philosophical foundation for understanding holiness. Is that what you're saying? Sure. And, and a little bit more than that, like I'm now viewing this as like, okay, CS Lewis is correct. Right. Then this is kind of giving us a doctrine toward holiness. You Mm -hmm. know, it's like everything leading up to holiness is what I believe this book is talking about. Um, and that, those who take on a view of naturalism, there is no holiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just kind of defending, I guess what I'm saying is Lewis is defending that there is holiness. Mm. So yeah, I guess, yeah, he, he's certainly defending miracles and their philosophical possibility. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess, yeah, miracles, I guess you could say by definition are holy. Sure. So yeah, so I guess supernatural does not automatically equate holy or good. Right. It's uh, I guess a whole another plane. Of right. Right. But when you deny the holy and the unholy, right, you are 
Everything else is just nature, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. All on the same playing field. It's not separate and better or separate and worse. It's all together, mm-hmm. which then you know begs the question: Well, then what what value does anything have? Mm-hmm. Right? It kind of leads back to the moral question of why is anything good? Why is anything bad? Yeah. So, I know. Yeah, one of my takeaways, especially in the early reading, the early part of the book is. I think similar to yours, but I just I'm, I'm going to cast it in different terms. Sure. Where just the way he just sort of defined naturalism, and as we spoke about, Anstum took issue with how he defined it, and sure. other people think that it's a lot more diverse than than Lewis says. Mm-hmm. But even though some people might not think it's a perfect definition, I found it a useful definition. Sure. And certainly was able to under even just I think it was like the next day I was watching the news. And I was able to understand someone's argument or thought process a whole lot more because I was like, oh, they're a, a naturalist. Right. Or they think like, yeah, it's sociology or biology or chemistry, et cetera, just is the whole shebang. Sure. And so I just was able to understand their yeah, thought process a little bit more. And just having that, Lewis, seeing that where Lewis set the boundaries just helped me just be able to I guess categorize my world in uh, a little bit easier now I guess we, we didn't say it in the we didn't say it in the overview of the text but I, I, I feel like now it's coming to mind that I think this is an appropriate time to share it Lewis certainly thought that a lot of times you need to question the when someone says they experienced a miracle or sure, sure. or uh, saw a miracle and right. yeah that any like I think Lewis would probably be the first one to say that like in the in the medieval times or there were certainly a lot of people who were bamboozled or sure only, they did not experience the miracles that people right. thought right but it, but in, and again he's not trying to defend. I guess he's he is defending the miracles from the Bible. Sure. But Lewis's main objective is to just philosophically open the door right. for it. He's uh but he but he does specifically say that yes, you need to be very very careful when, when you claim something as a miracle. Sure. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. He's not saying every miracle is valid. He's just saying some miracles are valid. Yeah, the miracles are possible. Right. They're not impossible, but that being said, not everything that you call a miracle is is a miracle. Sure. And I think even the Bible would, you know, suggest the same thing. It says, you know, test every spirit. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's like, oh, we're going to test this one and this one isn't in line with, you know, the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um this could just be someone's pride or this could just be, you know, someone, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get a leg up and yeah. cover their tail or whatever it is. Right. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. And kind of going back to your point, um, that back when you were talking about the news, mm-hmm. there's, there's definitely a, a sense here and I'm definitely coming from this from a, okay, if all this is true, then what? Mm-hmm. Um, but you definitely see, you know, Satan and the enemy, instead of, you know, creating something new, mm-hmm. you know, just attributing what the Bible already says to the universe rather than to God. Mm-hmm. For example, we say, um, well, we have all these laws and systems in place in us and in, in place in sociology, right? When we interact together, mm-hmm. what we do is we actually see 
things from the universe in us, mm-hmm. essentially saying that the we have the image of the universe in us, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's such a parallel. It's a counterfeit to the image of God in us. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned, I just a quick aside, I was listening to a psychology podcast the mm-hmm. other day, and this one psychology professor is, is, is making her life's work trying to find an overarching theory to human behavior. Mm-hmm. And right, and she's saying that she, she, I don't know if she would think she's close, but her current theory, overarching theory, is that all humans act out of a uh, a need for self-esteem mm-hmm. and I was thinking about that I was like self-esteem sounds a whole lot like pride yeah and it's like I was like what she everything she was saying all the examples she was talking about, I was like you could probably just substitute pride for self-esteem sure and it sounds like the like original sin or like Christian doctrine for the last thousands of years right um, yeah so I, I think you're right I think there's a lot of times people talk about naturalism the same way that uh, Christians or just any uh, religious or person of faith talks about their their faith. Sure, and, and you can definitely you know draw comparisons, and it's not always one to one. Yeah, but you can definitely draw comparisons to where you know you take basic Christian doctrine, mm-hmm. but then you just apply it to the yeah. universe rather than you know an active living God. Yeah. Cool. So I know I mentioned it earlier, so I wanted to get your thoughts, Andrew. If you agree with Lewis that Adam's sin was fortunate, and yeah, if, if you thought that was the case. I don't know if I'd use that word. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've been thinking on this myself, and I don't know if I'd use the word fortunate. Um, that being said, it does, you know, obviously remind me of the verse in Romans what the enemy meant for evil, the Lord means for good. It's also in Genesis as well, mm-hmm. right? That the Lord works all thing good for all, all things for good for those who love him, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I would call Adam's sin fortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I, don't, I also wouldn't call it unexpected or un, maybe unplanned is the wrong word as well, but um, unaccounted for mm-hmm. by God. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if I'd call it fortunate because then you're kind of glorifying sin mm-hmm. as much as I would say, you know, even the biggest, worst sin we can imagine can be used for good. Yeah. It, it can, it can be, or it has or, been, yeah, it has been, has well, been used for good. Yeah. Like I would say an evil act can certainly be evil and remain evil, sure. but God certainly can redeem it. Right. It's not like, oh, it's evil. And thus, God will redeem it, or thus, right. it's like there's another process that has to be right. initiated. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it certainly can be. As we talked about, like death is, I guess, in a sense, not natural. Sure. Uh, but it's it's something that God will did not create, but He will use it. Right. To yeah, or has used it to redeem humanity. And I think the reason I don't like the word fortunate, mm-hmm. again, like I said, it glorifies sin. Mm-hmm. But then it, it leads you kind of down a path of, well, I should sin more mm-hmm. for greater mercy. No. You know? And, and Paul in Romans obviously says, by no means, right? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. We should not continue to sin so that there would be greater mercy. Mm-hmm. So that's why I would steer away from maybe that word. But yeah. at the same time, I don't want to read today's 
you know, mm-hmm. connotation of fortunate onto C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. The, the only way I can sort of think to, if you, if you will, redeem that thought of Lewis, and I, and I can't, I, I don't know if that's unique to him or if that is Anglican teaching. Sure. But I, I just, I was thinking like, okay, maybe Lewis is thinking like, oh, it's kind of like working out or exercising. Sure. Where when you're working out or exercising, on some level, you're like destroying your body. Sure. So that it can be made stronger or better. Sure. Um, but it's it's still hard to yeah think about that uh, when just so much yeah there's just so much evil in the world and so much evil has come from original sin just to on any level think of it as fortunate right and I mean yes to mm-hmm. all of that yeah but it also makes the assumption that we that had Adam not sinned we would have been in a worse place yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if we can make that assertion. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. So mm-hmm. that I think there's also a kind of a, a a a path there that I don't know leads to yeah. a strong strong argument. Yeah. Well, any listeners, if if I'd be interested, if you all, if any of you all are Anglican, if if this or any other denomination, if if this is a doctrinal teaching or if this is unique to to Lewis, right. Um, I will say, like, if, if Lewis is right, if if humanity is overall better off because of Adam's sin, it certainly would explain a lot. Sure. It would explain why God, quote, let it happen. Sure. It would explain, I just, yeah, there's verses in the Bible to certainly right. uh, support it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, you know, Jesus coming and dying was plan A. Yeah. It wasn't plan B. Yeah. I think I think the word a word you use un, it, the sin was not unaccounted for. Right. I think is a good way to think of it. And I definitely uh, I want to make this point that mm-hmm. because there are miracles, that doesn't mean that we are adopting a God of a gaps theory, right? That because there's something we can't explain, it must be God, mm-hmm. right? I, and and I think that sometimes because something seems miraculous we then say, well, we don't need to look into it, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't, I wouldn't say that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that, you know, our love of God and our devotion to to knowing Him should lead us to scientific pursuits. Mm-hmm. And if something seems miraculous, maybe digging in a little bit more mm-hmm. to, to understand that. Um, but, yeah, definitely would not let our, you know appreciation and acceptance of miracles uh, into kind of a God of the gaps where, you know, anything we can't explain must be a miracle and Mm -hmm. thus must be divine intervention. Yeah. What did you think about what Lewis said about judging a miracle based on its fitness of how, if it illuminates the larger whole or et cetera, do you think that is a good measuring stick? And if it is a good measuring stick, is it, a good measuring stick for everything or just once it meets certain criteria? Um, I think my problem with that is it works really well in hindsight. Yeah. Is right? that, yeah, that's, yeah, you, that's something. Cause yeah, if you just, like you were just saying, if something doesn't make sense or if there's a gap in right. understanding and you're just like, okay, God. And then it's sure. like, I don't think a, a measure of fitness right. is, is useful. Um, Right. I mean, 
for example, we can and and for the big stuff like the resurrection, mm -hmm. I would agree, right? Like mm -hmm. this really fits into the narrative of Christianity, mm -hmm. and then should be accepted there as a yeah. miracle, right? Um, and for two thousand years, we still cannot explain how this could have happened, yeah, right? Um, and so in hindsight, I think it does work. But in present day, we just, I mean, eclipses were seen as miracles. Yeah. Right? And as messages from God. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe they were, but and I Maybe guess... they were messages, but that doesn't necessarily, I mean, we can yeah. predict eclipses. Yeah. So. And maybe they were at some point, but I just, yeah, we, but we understand just the mechanics and right. now and can predict them. Yeah. So but. I would say that it's tough to do presently and definitely tougher to do looking forward, yeah. saying, you know, we can expect a miracle or. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's kind of counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. um, but in regards to hindsight, I think you can yeah. look at the fitness. Maybe, yeah, maybe like a measurement of like like historical. I think yeah. it works really well for those who accept miracles already. I don't mm -hmm. think it's a good argument for those who aren't accepting miracles. Yeah. True. All right. Well, I certainly would love to keep talking about this, but I know we're running out of time. And I do have a game I would like to play with you, Andrew. All right. So the title of the game is, Where Did This Miracle Occur? So I'm going to give you a three-word summary mm -hmm. of a miracle in the Bible. And you have to tell me what, which book of the Bible it occurred in. All right, let's do it. Okay. So I want you to know that if you do not get all of them right... You, I'm fired? Yeah, you are not allowed to be a pastor anymore. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> so... High stakes. High stakes. I'm, I'm, okay. I thrive in pressure. Okay. Number one. Challenge, staff, snake. Challenge, staff, snake. Uh, Exodus. Good job. Do you, do you know what the, the miracle is? Um, Moses throws his snake down to uh, see if God's actually telling him to do something. Uh, close. It's Aaron throwing his staff down in front of Pharaoh. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. That's right. Aaron was with him. Yeah. That's right. Okay. I know Prince of Egypt. I just messed up a lot of people. Sure, when it sure. Comes to that. Yeah. yeah. Phenomenal movie. Tough inaccuracy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number two. This one's gonna be a little bit tougher. Okay. King, hand, withered. Ooh, judges. No. Ah, First Kings thirteen. It is where Joa, Jeroboam's hand withered. So someone from yeah, his kingdom yeah. uh, criticized him, and he like ordered him away. And as he was like pointing the finger for him to be led away, God like withered his hand. Yeah, on Jeroboam, the spot. not great. Yeah. I would like to be on the record, not great. Yeah. Also, I guess that means I have to put in my formal resignation here. <laughs> well, let's see. Let's see if you can redeem yourself with uh, getting any of the uh, the next ones. Let's do it. Number three, advisor, prayer. Cats. Cats. Advisor. Prayer. Cats. Oh, this feels like a minor prophet if I've ever heard it. Um, don't tell me. Advisor. Prayer. Cats. Cats, 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 cats. This one's one of the more famous. Oh, miracles. is it? Yeah. So. Oh. Oh, okay. Daniel in the lion's den. Good Don't job. call them cats. Get out of here. <laughs> I thought that was that was <laughs> yeah, exactly Daniel. Hey, number four. Taxes, fish, coin. Taxes, fish, coin. Oh, this is when Jesus, uh, they come up to him and say, "Hey, you gotta pay your tax." Mm -hmm. And he's like, "No, I don't, but I'll make you happy." Pulls a fish out, pulls a coin from the fish, and hands it to him. Yes. 
Oh, uh, do you know which book of the Bible is from? Oh, that's right. I'm, that's what I'm supposed to do. It's, I mean, obviously one of the four Gospels. Um, I imagine you probably didn't pick one that had two locations, so I'm going to pick Mark. No. Ah. Uh, you got the story right. Yeah, when uh, a drachma was in the mouth of the fish and, and uh, yeah, exactly. But it's from Matthew 17. Matthew 17. Yeah, so you, you, were, you were in the ballpark for sure. Yeah. Okay, last one. Official. Oh, okay, this one I'm going to give you four words. Uh oh. But you have to tell me not only the book and if you in, in the in the miracle, but also the chapter. Okay. So four words. Official. Father. Paul. Healing. Official. Father. Paul. Healing. Well. Definitely acts. Yep. Now it's the chapter that, mm -hmm. that... Okay, well, Paul, we're probably looking after verse 16 because that's when he goes on his missionary journey to Macedonia. Definitely after 16, though. Good job. Um, probably towards the end. Um, not quite at 28. So we're going to look at 23. And it is uh, I didn't actually know. Oh, that you, you reason really well. Uh, it is actually Acts 28. 28. Uh, okay. It is, okay. it is uh, Paul sure. heals the father of Publius and others. Gotcha. So the, it's actually the last recorded miracle in the New Testament. Interesting. I yeah. Uh, yeah, I was thinking, when I think of Acts 28, I think of kind of the benediction at the end. Mm. And yeah, it's it, that chapter is definitely more than that. So that was... So, well, listener, thank you for joining us on this leg of our journey, and thank you for your patience as as you wait for us to get the, the, the podcasts out. I am not a fast reader, but I really enjoyed reading this book with you, Thornton, mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, I hope you guys enjoyed, you know, kind of seeing this book through our eyes. Our next episode, we will go through Surprised by Joy, uh, going through a few essays along the way. Yeah, I think that will work out well where we'll do a book and, and I just slowly digest it over a couple months but then maybe do a small flash episode on a on a particular essay. I love it. Yeah, so I think that, that'll be a lot of fun. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. Me too. And if you want to connect with us, uh, dear listener, uh, you can um, connect with us on Twitter at Mir C.S. Lewis. Thanks and we'll see you all next time. <laughs>